Hi, Yoko. Hi, Kate. This is episode 33 of So So Where Are You From? from? Hey. Kate, how are you doing? Man, I am about to officiate wedding number four. And wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's fun. It's a fun time to be alive. Shout out to Leah and Curtis. Yay. Getting married this Saturday. Wow. Okay. Also, after Yoko, I'm officially retiring. I'm going to say it here <laughs> right now. Yoko is the last wedding I will officiate. Unless you get down on your hands and knees and <laughs> fork over some cold hard cat. No, it's fun. I like it. It's, but it's just like, I, I, I honestly can't think of anyone in my very close acquaintance. Like anyone left. left. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> how, how are you, Yoko? I'm well. Wedding planning has been chugging along. Chugga, chugga, chugga. This weekend, I tried on some dresses. Dresses. I was there. Yeah. That was beautiful. Oh, thank you. I think uh, I was looking at the photos later and I don't know if I liked any of them. I mean, that's why you try it on. That's why you try it on. Yeah. But I'm glad I tried on a couple things. Yeah. Yeah. It's always good to see what's available. And God, with wedding dresses, it's like endless. It's endless. I mean, I wasn't even walking through the dresses and I was just looking upon the aisles of sequins and lace and frills rocks <laughs> yoko had to like go through all the dresses while wearing white gloves oh my god yeah it's very odd yeah i thought i was like doing a magic trick or something yeah. I'm just, like, um yeah aside from that uh things are pretty good i'm starting to like think about um how i'm gonna take the rest of my days off because i still have a few left you got any vacations planned or not i guess they're not vacations or travel plans well uh <laughs> for thanksgiving i'm going to florida oh. spending time with trey's family so that'll be my first non-California Thanksgiving. First non-California Thanksgiving. In ever. Wow. Yeah. You always went back to California for Thanksgiving? Yeah. I think Kevin and I have talked about this where, yes, we fly back for both Thanksgiving and Christmas. Yeah. And it's just an expense that you account for. But the crazy part about going to Florida is I get to go to all the theme parks. I'm so excited. Oh I've never God. been to Disney World. I've never been to the new Star Wars land. I've never been to, uh, what else is out there? Epcot, Epcot Center. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> all of those things, all of those experiences, I'm about to have them. Wow. How long are you going to be there for? A long time. I think from Wednesday to the following Tuesday. Oh, right. Thanksgiving yeah. Yeah. is expensive to travel. It is. Oh, my God. It's like more than double. It's insane. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, uh, just more L.A. time. Oh, okay. Actually. Oh, I, I had things I wanted to mention on the podcast that okay. I... Crap. Was it related to a movie that I saw? Yes. Okay. You saw Parasite. I saw Parasite. Uh, that movie was nuts. And, and you said you have not I seen it. I have not seen it. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that it's... The sort of pitch that I've heard from people who've seen the movie is that it like brings to light a lot of things about society that are that feel very like relevant right now. Yes. And my response to that was, I don't really feel like thinking about that stuff when I'm watching a movie. I would rather my movies be very straightforward and basic and like fucking Hobbs and Shaw. 
Yes. <laughs> I, I feel that way. We had this conversation, but I feel that way about TV. Like, you know, there's a lot of yeah. very heavy TV that's like, really good and available right now. And for me, the stuff that I use to decompress is like Bon Appetit videos and oh, yes. like clips from Jesus and Mero on Showtime. Yes. But I will say, so I said the same thing uh, about how I like right now, I'm not in a state where I want to be watching movies that like make me think too much. Uh, but my our our friend Rachel was like, the thing about Parasite is that it's like it takes all of the things that people love about movies and just like puts it all into a movie. Mm -hmm. It's like you like cinematography, got great cinematography. You like things that are funny. This has humor. Yes. You like twists. This has got twists. I mean, that could get me excited to like watch a movie. It yeah. sounds really entertaining. And it's unexpected. Like, wow. You don't see a lot of it coming. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Korea. Good job. <laughs> do you want to talk about some model minorities? Yeah, let's do it. Who's your model minority, Yoko? My model minority is a woman named Maya Mann. I recently saw her speak on a panel with another woman who's an artistic director for a dance company and it was interesting because the conference that I went to was just about creative technology and Maya is a software engineer at the Google Creative Lab. Basically she made, she used uh, this like AI called PoseNet which is that detects like movement based on like looking at images of bodies and it's moving like live. And she created this project that took that technology and combined it with the artistic director of this dance company, Bill T. Jones. Mm -hmm. And like, so when people think about AI and machine learning and the future of machine learning as it pertains to art, I think a lot of people think, oh, it's going to kill art. Or it's like artists aren't going to have anything to do anymore because machine learning it just produces art. But the, what I loved about the talk that she did and the, and the project that she worked on with this dancer, it just com helped communicate that technology is just a tool to like further an art. It was interesting to see like even Bill T. Jones, the artistic director, came into this project thinking that this technology was basically going to like replace the dance, but found through working with Maya that it is just, a, it is just another tool that helps you better communicate like the message that you're trying to convey. And also I see Maya, uh, I had seen her at my dance class. And wow, she's very good at dancing. And then I saw her at this conference and I'm like, wait a second, <laughs> you are also a software engineer and you've been using dance to like create AI experiments with dance. I was just like, that's fucking nuts. Anyway, um, yeah, not to sound too fangirly, but shout out to you, Maya. <laughs> I don't know if that made any sense. We'll see. We'll edit it later. Love it. Love <laughs> Kate, it. Kate, who's your model minority? Um, okay. Before I say my model minority, uh, I want to correct my model minority from the last episode. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, a, <laughs> a friend of mine, Curtis, wrote in, and I really don't know what article I had cited to believe that there was only one Japanese player in the NBA there are, there have been many like, yeah. oh my God, I feel so dumb because literally all you have to do is Google Japanese NBA players and like they all come up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I think I just like looked at one article and was like, oh yeah, Rui Hachimura, like newest edition and like only half. And that's the only one wrong. Like, <laughs> okay. So there are a couple that I'd like to list off that Curtis emailed us. Mm -hmm. So Rex Walters is half Japanese. He actually also Rex Walters coached basketball at my college. I cannot believe that Ooh. I forgot about that. I was like, shit. Oh my God, Kate. Then, um, there's also Wataru or Wat Misaka, who is 
the uh, 61st pick in 1947. He was the first non-white player to play in the NBA. Wow. Yeah, God. Fuck that one up real bad. And then <laughs> lastly, there are two other current Japanese players, which are Utah Watanabe on the Memphis Grizzlies and Udai Baba on the Dallas Mavericks. So thank you, Curtis, for calling me out on that one. I don't know what I... You just have to cite more than one source when you do these things, and I apologize. I, okay. <laughs> it's like one of those things where I'm like, ah. I, I feel like we should be allowed to make mistakes, and when that happens, people can call us out, tell us we messed up, and that's totally cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just feel so yeah. embarrassed. There are some where I'm like, oh, my God. But, you know, you just got to move on from it. <laughs> okay. This week's model minority is... Bowen Yang. Yes. The first, first, like actually <laughs> first Asian American SNL cast member. Yeah. And I know this to be true. <laughs> oh Many sources cited. I Googled the shit out of this one, you guys. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, other people have guested on SNL. Other yes. people have hosted SNL, like Jackie Chan. Yes. <laughs> Jackie Chan, Lucy Liu, Aquafina. It's wild that, like, there aren't that many still. Yes. <laughs> I think it's still in the single digits. There's oh not, God. like, one article that's like, who are all of them? Yeah. Um, there have been some part Asian cast members, like Fred Armisen and Rob Schneider. Yeah, and yeah. not. I don't want to, like, deny Fred Armisen and Rob Schneider's identities, yeah. but they pass as white. Yeah. Extre like, or I guess Fred Armisen. You don't look at them and think that's an Asian person. Yeah, you know? exactly. And uh, I don't think that that's good or bad, but I do like the fact that like Bowen Yang is very easily identifiable as Asian. Yeah. And he's hilarious. So funny. Oh my God. He walked onto the scene, like first episode of the season on weekend update as Chinese trade daddy. It was <laughs> so funny. I, like, I appreciated how they, they like started playing into a stereotype and then just like turned it completely in the other direction. And yes. they were just like, ha, you thought we were going to go in one direction, but we went in this direction. Now you're racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. So yeah, he's played like a couple of really interesting characters. I also just showed Yoko this uh, clip of uh, him auditioning to be a soul cycle instructor. Oh my God. That's if definitely a type. <laughs> ever been to a soul cycle class or any kind of cycling class that you can relate to this, yeah. this experience. <laughs> but anyways, Bowen Yang, thank you so much for being the first F-I-R-S-T Asian American cast member of SNL. I, it must be hard to be that first person because you yeah. kind of like need to play into some things. I, I really appreciated that weekend update, but he didn't play. He like referenced the stereotypes without playing into them. Yeah. Have you seen the Lucy Liu monologue? No, but it's, the way that you told just said that, I'm like, I don't think I want to. It's it's pretty upsetting. I even remember watching it like when it was live, and I want to say it was in the year 2000, and being like, oh, why is she doing this? There oh, was like no. references to her like pulling cast members around in the rickshaw, serving <sighs> cocker spaniel, doing like cast members dry cleaning, like fully leaning into the stereotypes of like Chinese people. Oh. And it was like, it was really upsetting. So anyways, the fact that Bowen Yang is like in the writer's room and on the stage just gives me a sense of peace and calm. Yeah. 
Thank you, Bowen Yang. Yes, I'm very happy because SNL, like, you know, despite its lack of diversity for an inexcusable amount of time, like, it's a it's a cultural institution yeah. to some to some extent. Yeah, you know? I find I find that like frustrating because I never thought SNL was funny growing up, and I never watched it. it the fact that someone like Bowen Yang is going to be on the show all the time, like maybe it'll change me and I'll like start watching it. But I just never found it to be a relatable show. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not. I mean, obviously, it's not for us, you know. Yeah. In particular, yeah. us as Asian Americans. But I don't know. I feel like. Coastal elites kind of get it. If you live in New York, you get it. Like you've yeah. been surrounded by like that shtick, like that type of humor for a while. Yeah. But yeah, it's feels like the tide is turning. Yay! <laughs> Finally, hooray! Yay! Should we talk about our guest? Oh my god, she was awesome. Sarah knew. Yeah, was our guest on the podcast today. Yeah, I know Sarah from church because uh, I saw her preach. Um, also for those of you who don't know, um, I don't really tell people that I grew up Christian, um, that I grew up going to church. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that a lot of people, uh, have, they feel some type of way about that. And I feel like I don't tell people with the hopes that when they find out they're not disappointed or like they don't yeah. change their perceptions of me. Like, you know, you have so many judgments of me based on like how I look or the things that I say. And so, yeah, I mean, I, admittedly without any other context if I learn that somebody like regularly goes to church I there's definitely I have like it colors my perspective on them yeah for sure yeah I and it's I mean it's embarrassing to admit but it's true and I I was admittedly surprised when I learned that you went to church growing up and I was like Oh, see? yeah, <laughs> see? that's I'm what sorry. That's no, yeah. don't be sorry. I think that's the effect that I want that announcement to have is like, yes, I grew up going to church. I still go now. Like, yeah, um, I definitely am not the type of person to like police my or like impose my beliefs on people. Yeah. But that being said, I, I really like the church that I go to now. Mm-hmm. I met Sarah through that church. And uh, I remember thinking when she got up to speak first of all her sermon was called decolonizing christianity i was like what is this i'm ready i am fully subscribed (laughs) yeah and sarah is incredible it was personal and talked about her story and her family and anyways i was like how do i become friends with you and immediately accosted her one (laughs) one day after service and was like can we get lunch and yeah, so anyways, Sarah came on the podcast. We had a really interesting conversation about all the cool things that she does. Yeah, uh, she's a ghostwriter, which yeah. I, I for like I don't I didn't know what that was until we talked. I felt like I learned so much. I grew up without religion, so I just I feel like a lot of my understanding of religion comes from like stuff that is not personal. Like not I don't learn it uh, like talking to my friends because like most of us don't talk about that stuff, and a lot of my friends aren't religious. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I thought I I just learned a lot and she's just like a really interesting person. Yeah. Please be friends with us. <laughs> so cool. Anyways, yeah. I hope you enjoy the interview. Yeah, let's get into it. So today on the podcast, we have Sarah New. Sarah New is a writer and she's written for uh, publications like Vice. How do you say this second one? Is it, it's like... I was telling Yoko Jacobin? that Jacobin, is it Jaco- Jacobin? Is it Hakobin? Like, like, 
sometimes you see words written and you've always seen it but you've never actually said it or heard it out loud yeah it's a french word uh jacobin i think jacobin but i don't know how you say it in french it's just like the jacobin. <laughs> yeah probably that perfect <laughs> sorry please continue but yes sarah's also written for things like sojourners public radio international south china morning post the slant democratic left and splinter news she's a great speaker i know her because she's a deacon at my church Sarah, so cool <laughs> you're the coolest huge fan i have a question for you so where are you from i actually am not born in this country uh i was born in malaysia and came to california when i was 10 what part of california irvine southern california hey What's yep. up? <laughs> Taiwanese and Persian Mecca, yes. basically, <laughs> to be very specific. I should also maybe qualify that I'm from the eastern part of Malaysia and the state called Sarawak. How old were you when you came to the States? I was 10. 10. Okay. And what was that like for you? First year was actually in a city called Arcadium. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And then, so like I went to Temple City High Elementary School, a place called Longden. Now, I came in in the middle of sixth grade. And then... The following fall, we moved to Irvine, and then I started middle school with all these people who were also in some ways starting school afresh. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think there was just so much change going on. Middle school was already a hard transition for people. I was lucky in that I grew up speaking English. It's my family's is our first language for among all my siblings. My parents were both educated in um, Western universities. Mm-hmm. So the only thing I really had to switch was my accent. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember doing a lot of like slurring of my words because so, I would rather be seen as someone who could not articulate properly enunciate properly than someone who had, that, had an accent yeah. um yeah it's just a lot of you know being like okay I'm new kid you know, I'm picked last in sports <laughs> um but I would prove to everyone that I was actually very athletic and then they would then pick me second or third nice. um <laughs> you know I, some of it is just like new kid to school stuff um yeah. But, you know, California's not really the worst place to move if you're Asian. All the white people are new as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, Irvine's such a new city. Yeah. It, so, like, huh. it, like, popped out kind of recently because it was very planned. Really? So, I didn't know that. Yeah. It's a fairly new city. So, all the white people there sort of just got there, like, not that long ago. Yeah. Huh. So, um, so, actually, I think overall it's a pretty smooth transition other than the fact that all the cool kids were no one who looked like you, if that makes sense. Like, yeah. Yeah, it was the athletic kids or the pretty kids and they yeah. were generally, I think, white or black. Got it. So it's just like, okay, this is my role in this like social hierarchy. I'm here to be smart. I'm here to, I think I was a weird person because I also was like somewhat good at sports, but you know, and just kind of keep quiet and then hang out with my other Asian people. Mm-hmm. So it felt, I think, I remember at first being self-conscious that um, like I didn't want to be lumped in with the other Asian nerds, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah. so I feel that so hard. I feel yeah, like I feel maybe it was too. a little like internalized self hatred. I don't know, you know. Yeah. But, but I think part of it is just reacting to the fact that no matter what I did, I would be yeah. lumped in as to like these are you're going to be your friends. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I have a question: um, Is your dad a pastor? Technically, yes. So it's how he conceives of himself, mm-hmm. but his occupation is as an engineer. Oh, what? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So that is. So why my family moved to America was because my dad and my mom together were sent to take over a church in LA. Oh, and, wow. And then start churches because they had done that in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. But how we got the legal means to immigrate was through getting my dad getting an engineering job. Got it. Whoa. That's crazy. But that also must mean that it required some engineering as, an, as like a vocation requires some amount of like 
hired? Yeah, so both of my parents were the first in their families to get college uh, education. Well, my mom was the youngest, so she was the second. Um, But yes, my dad was educated in the UK and my mom in Australia, which is actually fairly common for a certain level of class within the Malaysian, um, particularly Chinese diaspora, because Mm -hmm. Chinese people cannot usually get into the top schools in in Malaysia um, because... Um, of quotas basically around I don't know the details but basically there is a kind of like affirmative action for the majority population which is who are the Malays Mm -hmm. yeah so um, it's generally very very hard to get into top school so you usually send your kids abroad interesting it just sounds like such a a high effort to like go get an engineering degree so you can like come to the states and like be an engineer so it wasn't his intention to be an engineer to go to the states i see like he practiced engineering for like i mean they moved over when they were in their 40s mm-hmm. so i think the church they were part of a church planting movement that wanted to basically revitalize their north american operations Whoa. and so wow. they gave my parents three choices like it was south africa india or america my mm-hmm. dad had always wanted to go to america and obviously like you know it's good for the kids education so America was. Wow. It's a weird immigration story. Yeah. yeah. No, that's so interesting. I remember when Kate was um, telling me a little bit about you, I was just like, I, I, I realized how little I know about how churches work because I'm, I'm completely not religious. I'm sorry if I ask a lot of like, no, no, it's questions. good. It's, it's probably I had hel- to look up what a deacon was. A deacon was, yeah. <laughs> I mean, technically, actually, I'm no longer a deacon, but I am, as of this week, on part time staff. What? I, just, oh. I, just, I need to sign the contract. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> Breaking <Wow>. news. <laughs> it's like, you know, 10, 15 hours a week. No, it's very low key, but. Um, so yes, to just, I don't know what my title is. I still have to come up with it, but right now just, I'm a whole plugger is how I understand my role. Got it. (laughs) But but I think it would be helpful just to mention that the church planting network actually started in Bangkok. So it's predominantly Southeast Asian Mm -hmm. and they were trying to like penetrate the American market, so to speak, to use business terms. So is it like planting Asian churches? Many of the churches that were planted in North America tended to be immigrant churches, mainly Thai Mm. because of the origins in Bangkok. Um, but my parents were very set on planning like a multi-ethnic, um, multi-racial church because that is a church they built in Malaysia. Because Malaysia wow. also has a lot of many ethnicities and races and languages even. My parents ran three different services uh, for their Chinese, English, and Bahasa Malay. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Wow. Cool. Have you, what is your experience with like cultural churches, like ethnically um, homogenous churches? I, I actually have never really experienced it, really? which is kind of a weird... I mean, obviously, I've been to services. You know, when we first came to America, we were staying in this motel mm-hmm. with, uh, it was like, two beds and six people. And then next to it was the church, which was a predominantly Thai church. Mm-hmm. So we were there for a good while. That was the church my dad was meant supposed to take over. But then there was all this politics, and he's like, okay, I'm going to start my own, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, it's clear. And I think I, now I have more understanding of cultural kind of immigrant churches, so mm-hmm. the ways in which they act as a social hub or yeah. particularly for new people come to America. But I've always grown up in like a multi, like in Malaysia it was like a multilingual church and um, although there are obviously racial dynamics and stuff like that, my parents are Chinese Malaysian. So there is like a way in which that creates a certain power balance. Um, but yeah, and then when I hopped around churches, I was always part of my dad's church, but when I started going to churches on my own, I sought out multi 
racial churches. Wow. So I don't know. It's kind of weird. <laughs> I, I went to a very, like a hundred percent Japanese American church. Yeah, I That's know. why we talked I about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like really, uh, it's really interesting because I think it's, uh, in the landscape of like post-war, like you want to like hang yeah. out with your same people and who have gone through the same experience. And, um, they were all like the same generation. Um, my church does services in English and Japanese cause we do have like a first generation Japanese contingent as well. Yeah. I don't know. It's really interesting. Have you ever seen the show Kim's convenience? Yeah. I love the show. Yeah. <laughs> just imagine like that church dynamic, but with Japanese people. And that's what my church is like. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Definitely get it. Yeah. <laughs> So what denomination of Christianity do you identify with? Or do you? I, yeah, I don't know if I have a strong home base. I guess the church that I go to and you go to mm-hmm. um, is, I would characterize as a non-denominational church for mm-hmm. the most part. Um, it's progressive theology, but I will argue it's evangelical in style of worship and mm-hmm. off the methodology. And that is how I grew up and feel at home in. But also, you know, earlier this past weekend, I like spend some time in visiting a, a Tibetan Buddhist monastery and then an Orthodox church that was next to it. And I feel like kind of a kind of connection to both of those spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, how so? I think I feel in general also very drawn to more liturgical or more artistic forms of churches, if that makes sense, where mm. church is reflected, religion is reflected in the space and Ooh. not just, because, you know, in our church, we just rent a concert yeah. space. It's mm-hmm. it's really, it's very, it's very verbal church. You create right. church through your words. Yeah. Um, whereas if you look at Catholic church, Orthodox churches, you, church is really about the visual cues yeah. of it. Um, and then the the motions, the incense, the physicality of it, I think is important just to like, for me to be an embodied person to access religion in those ways. Mm. But also I, I have a kind of a pluralistic understanding of my faith. You know, my partner is Jewish and then I found it very helpful to engage in certain Buddhist practices for like my well-being. So mm-hmm. I don't know. That is so awesome. That's so cool. Okay. Oh my goodness. That's so. I feel like when I was growing up, um, my family are what you would call, and I, I feel like I've used this analogy with both of you, CEOs, Christmas Easter only for a really <laughs> long time. Just Did so you come up with that acronym just now? No, no, oh, no, 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 no. That was like one that was propagated by the church, like every Christmas and Easter. Uh, an accusatory way. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. They were just like, we see you. We know this is the most popular service of the year. Like, this is like the box you have to check every year when Ever. They're like, we're so happy to see you. We'll see you again in six months. Like, you know, like, Please give money. Please, exactly. Because it's like the biggest day of, of like church attendance is yep. Christmas and Easter. Mm-hmm. So they fully own up to it and they make a joke mm-hmm. out of it. It's like, I, I just thought that that acronym is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I um, my mom like got really involved in the church when uh, we got a little bit older. And then it became a part of like our weekly routine. And it became very quickly became like my core group of like really close friends and still is like my core group of really close friends to this day. Mm-hmm. So I think the community aspect of church was more, it was the bigger part than the spiritual aspect. And the thing that I really like about the church that we go to now, which is called forefront is, um, the way that we talk about the current landscape of society. And it's not just like, I feel like because it was a very Japanese church, it wasn't like confronting big conflicts like head on. And we just kind of talked around the world around us and just kind of kept things to like our little community and not like 
I don't know, violence and discrimination and things that are happening in the world that are like on my mind all the time. Yeah, like maybe leaning a lot on like the commonalities of the people who attend. Yeah, it's like I just felt like every sermon started with like, oh, so I was at, you know, our local breakfast spot this weekend and this thing happened to me and then it got me thinking about life and Jesus and it kind of like tied in like in a very, like everything always tied up in a bow, you know, Mm. and I don't think that life is like that and I don't think that Christianity is that simple where everything ends with like and they were all happily ever after the end you know and uh yeah I just appreciate that like our church has a lot of um discourse around uh issues around shame around sex around all these all these other things that you're always thinking about or that like have played a huge part of like who you are and doesn't always have answers but it always it's a place that asks good questions so Mm. but yeah I don't know how did you find Forefront I had just moved to Brooklyn Mm -hmm. so my my family lives in New York City we they moved out to New York around the same time I went to college and I went Mm -hmm. to college in um, Manhattan I stayed with them after college to like pay off my student debt Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, very lucky and privileged to be able to do do that and then after it more or less it almost completed that my, my I decided to move out with a friend of mine to Brooklyn so I was just looking for a local church in the area and my I went to an Episcopal church in Upper that called All Angels and the rec, one of the priests they recommended Forefront in a list of actual other evangelical churches so I went to a bunch of them and I didn't know Forefront was anything like special or anything I just thought oh, it would be like standard non-denominational evangelical church which it was kind of transitioning out of becoming so it was really interesting mm. to kind of see them in midst of that transition be like okay i think we might start becoming affirming of lgbt people you know they were very Mm -hmm. much in the middle of asking those questions as a congregation in a way that was like genuine not just like right yeah were these discussions happening like during the service where like everybody else is also there and listening or is this like a like these sorts of conversations are happening like i don't know in the office like before the service starts or how did how did how did you know about these conversations, I guess? I, well, after my first service, I just went up and asked, oh. you know, what is your position of stance? And I was very much at that point in time still figuring out what my stance was. I'd always knew I was queer, but I was always like unsure if God was okay with that, basically. Mm. So for actually for 10, maybe even longer years, I thought it was more likely than not that God was not. Mm-hmm. And Forefront was actually very helpful in kind of catalyzing a change of mind so i went up to ask and the pastor said we're having a lot of active conversations and we would like to invite you and other the whole congregation to be part of it mm-hmm. and by that they meant um you know emails and one-on-one ch- chats but also they had a big uh public event where they invited were you there at that time they invited justin lee Mm-mm. who at that point in time was the founder and uh he's still the founder but he was also the executive director of what was then called the gay christian network Mm. which started as an online forum, but now is like a very large LGBTQ Christian conference that has people of a variety of theological positions. And so when they invited him to come speak, uh, and that I think kind of started a conversation, but I would say in general, the way the church sort of did it was not so much talking about LGBTQ issues directly on Sunday service, although that did happen. And now I think it's very explicitly clear, mm-hmm. but more about talking about a different way of interpreting the Bible, a different way mm. of thinking about um, rethinking kind of assumptions we've had about our Christian faith. So then when you do introduce the LGBTQ stuff, it's less of a surprise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like um, mm. Forefront is really good at like contextualizing things because 
I don't know, like one sermon that kind of sticks out to me is like there's this parable of the mustard seed, right? And Mm. it was like the way that I had always understood that was like, oh, if you plant and nurture your faith, it will grow into this big, strong tree. And then I come to find out like through attending Forefront, that's actually like not the case and that a mustard seed like grows like a weed and it like overtakes like Mm. all the stuff surrounding it. And like that's what... It's like a virus. Yeah, exactly. It's a virus that spreads. Wow. <laughs> it was like, whoa, that's crazy and not what I totally thought. But I think Jonathan, uh, head pastor, said it like it's a way to validate American exceptionalism, right? And I was like, I mm. totally feel like that's how I interpreted it. Yeah. So I don't know. It gets you thinking about stuff in like different ways. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, God. Um, so the church that I grew up with um, is actually classified as a United Methodist Church. Oh, okay. Yeah, and the United Methodist Church has recently come out like publicly against like LGBTQ, LGBTQ people and like is not going to affirm them. And I was really, really upset by that. And mm-hmm. I mean, at least like in my church. Uh, like I happen to know the bishop and it's just like he had to <laughs> he's a, he happened to know him because he's a, a family friend of ours and I mean he had to come out publicly and say like we we affirm and accept you and like you know the national opinion is not the opinion of this specific caucus and because you're all in the western yes that's conference correct. western conference right. yeah so I don't know it's just a really weird time to be Christian person right now mm-hmm. and especially post-Trump I think yeah, yeah. god <laughs> I think about that all the time um anyways I I'm kind of curious like about your experience like preaching really quickly and then we can kind of like True. shift shift topics what was it like writing a sermon like the first time yeah I mean I know you're a, a writer mm-hmm. and yeah. uh did you had you done public speaking before through so in college I did InterVarsity, which is like a college Christian campus ministry mm-hmm. club that is not the worst, but it is conservative on um, LGBT issues. But yeah, I guess I get spoke to like fifty undergrads, you know, kids my age. I don't know how this is common, but I think in I think it's common in other Chinese schools potentially. I went to a semi I don't know, I guess it was a British used to be a British Catholic missionary school, but they had public, in elementary school in Malaysia, they had public speaking events every year. You need to speak to the whole student body. Wow. And Everybody? I, yeah, and I did wow. it basically from like seven to 10 mm-hmm. and I did it every year. Um, and I generally won all the, all, all the, the competitions. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I, I did, uh, unfortunately for my ego. I can totally <laughs> see that. So uh, <laughs> I think, you know, I just had, just kind of reactivated the 10-year-old self. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, it was definitely really nervous. I think my first sermon, I was talking about my father and like moving to America and mm-hmm. like decolonizing stuff. So it was very emotional. I think more about the content than the speaking to the audience. But it felt like a... I always describe it like when you talk about something that's hard and that has had some sort of exert some sort of negative influence in your life mm-hmm. and you talk about it out loud and you talk about how you process it and you're still processing it and you're trying to overcome it. It feels to use like very biblical terms like a demon casting or mm. to use weirder terms like an exorcism. You're mm. casting something out of you publicly in this kind of ritualistic way and then the congregation affirms you and what you've done. So I don't know. It's kind of a powerful experience. That's so cool. That's how I became a huge Sarah New fan. I was like, whoa. That was like one of the like earlier services I had attended. And mm. I was like, I am a huge fan of this church. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How does it work? Like, do you, is it like you decide as a 
group that like it's going to be Sarah's turn to like give a sermon and then like how do you think about what you want to talk about sure so usually they have a spreadsheet it's like a calendar oh, <laughs> oh cool <laughs> yeah like Yoko loves spreadsheets <laughs> it's like color-coded and oh my god stop. <laughs> now you're speaking the language <laughs> it's quarterly just kidding I mean it is, it is somewhat quarterly it's just modified by the church calendar so like you know the, the church calendar has like between Christmas and Easter is like a season and between Easter and Advent is a different season and stuff like that so there are themes for each season and the staff will kind of pick themes. I usually more or less try to figure out how to just work whatever theme they've given me, a pastor's given me, into whatever I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> <laughs> nice. basically, that's what happens. Because, you know, you, I think you get a small check to, like, thank you for your labor. But you're more or less doing it for, like, pennies on the hour, given how many hours you, like, spend doing this. Yeah. Um, so I just, like, well, might as well make it worth my time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's helpful to have some constraints because you have to force yourself to really engage with the text. So, but okay, I've never looked at this before. Let me figure out how to stay true to this while at the same time, uh, you know, saying what I want to say. But also, I think I always try to ask questions that force me to do a lot of research, mm-hmm. which is part of where I spend a lot of time. Mm-hmm. But I do that in part because I like to learn. So, it's helpful to have something to force me to learn. Totally. Yeah. So did so they cool. assign you a verse? Um, I think in the past it's usually been more theme. Like, hey, we're preaching on Labor Day. Can mm-hmm. you do something on labor? Mm-hmm. Or this pastor I did, they were going through the values of, and so the church values, I had to preach on generosity. And I think I'm scheduled to preach two more times, and I believe in this case they have passages they want me to cover. Oh. But it's kind of flexible, I guess. I could always be like, no. But I think this, <laughs> this season we're trying to stick, like all of this time we're going through just the book of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. And even as this past season, month, we've been going through just the book of Ephesians. Mm-hmm. So shifting gears really quickly to talk more about like your non-church activity okay. <laughs> can you tell me not about, that much <laughs> yeah can you tell me about being a published writer like the exp- how do you get there or what it feels like once you i get guess there like how or... to get there right like okay. you said you studied writing in school did you study writing in school i went to like a liberal arts institution so they weren't i mean there was creative writing but it's not like it's right. not professional major. So I just did political science and American studies, but all those classes I took involved like reading, writing, arguing. So yeah, I don't know, but I did journalism camp, some campus journalism when mm. I was um, in college. So the first few articles I wrote, I wrote because I felt like someone had to tell the story. Mm. And if not who, then maybe me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was kind of a weird sense of like obligation and in a sense like possibility. And I think just like a holdover from the evangelistic upbringing I come from. It's just oh. a lot of like, if you got to tell the world, you know, got to <laughs> share the good news uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or share all this story. So I just remember, and because I had, you know, jobs, you know, I got to have my, how I mostly pay the bills is as a ghostwriter. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. I, and so I would always be annoyed every time I got the urge to write something because it meant I have to spend less time. But that was kind of my criteria. If it nagged me enough, then it was probably worth pursuing. Got it. And then you would write it and you would sort of like shop it around. Is that kind of how it So works? in the beginning when you start out, because you don't have a lot of like clips, you can just write shit for free at, just to get your byline somewhere mm-hmm. and it can be more like op-ed stuff. Or, but for reporting stuff, now what I typically do is I send a pitch of what 
I want to report on to the editor. Mm. They say yes, then I start doing a lot of the legwork. I do some preliminary, just like ask around, see if the story I have in mind is like viable. But in the beginning, I don't know if this is best practice, but I would just write it. I like report it and write it and just hope someone would take it. Uh-huh. So tell me about being a ghostwriter. Yeah. Okay. What? <laughs> yeah. What? Like when you say ghostwriter, what the first thing I think of is like Drake and his <laughs> team of people helping him compose oh, no. these hot I take think, raps. But I think I, about those books from like the 90s, which oh, is God. like not even. It's not even that's a, it's nothing to do. It's just like solving puzzles and you're a teen. Never mind. Well, ghost <laughs> Sorry. I'll send you a link later. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm curious what you're talking about. Yes. Um, I kind of fell into it by accident. Um, it was my first job after college was to be part of what they call the thought leadership team. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, uh, a big eye roll. Very uh, serious title. Very serious title. <laughs> Basically, business people are just really into adding leadership to whatever mm. thing that's not necessary to call call it. Just yep. mm-hmm. add leadership sounds better. <laughs> but this CEO, you know, had written a book, was giving speeches at like big venues, I guess, like the World Economic Forum and the NFL and stuff like that. So he published regular columns. So he just needed a team. He had a speech writer. He had a research assistant. He had a ghost writer. And so I was a research assistant. But then everyone got fired. <laughs> and then, oh. Well, except for the ghostwriter. But then I started doing more like speech architecting, so to speak, and do, helping out with some articles and writing some of the articles. And so afterwards, uh, I just kind of went freelance. But I did kind of the same vein of work, like helping business leaders, particularly focus on organizational culture and leadership tends to be my specialty, mm. um, write to other business leaders on how to better run their organizations. Wow. Wow. That's so... When you just mm-hmm. mentioned when you were uh, the research assistant for that person, I I realized how with ghostwriting and also with speechwriting, I wondered if ghostwriting was similar to speechwriting. So I feel like I'm starting to have yeah. a better understanding. But it makes, I, I think I have this impression that writing is such a solitary pursuit. Mm-hmm. And it is when really like, I think at certain, I don't know if it's a certain level or like certain fields where there is like a team of people who are sort of like constructing a narrative together and like, I don't know whether it gets delivered in a speech or it gets delivered on like medium.com. Like that's to me, writing is like something, it feels like a very, yeah, like a very solitary activity. Um, I, I have a question about ghostwriting, which is like, does it, does it bother you that you are not directly given credit for that work? Yeah. Um, not really, because I actually, in some ways, some stuff I write, I prefer my name not to be on it, because I wouldn't 100% co-sign everything that was written, if that uh, makes sense. So mm-hmm. it gives me the ability to be very, um, like, mercenary about it. Like, this is a financial transaction. You're paying me for my services to make you sound smarter. Ah. Uh, yeah. Unwritten form. Yep. So, yeah, it, it kind of works i think with my writing when i think of my writing as a journalist it's a very is solitary activity i'm trying to figure out like what's true and trying to craft a narrative yeah. my service as a ghostwriter i'm kind of i'm a i provide a service i'm like almost like a some mixture of like a therapist occupational therapist mm-hmm. you know i'm trying to like help this person's like struggling ideas to come out <laughs> and emerge um you know and ideally in some versions you're not you don't work with the client that much you just kind of write it and they just sign it yeah but usually the people i work with they care and so you have to kind of massage it out and yeah it's a very intimate exercise in some yeah. ways how what are so what are some of the things that you do to sort of like extract that story or that narrative out how do you like brainstorm together or is that even the activity? Yeah. Sometimes if they're not really sure what to say, which yeah. is the most annoying part, of <laughs> if, they're, if they're not sure you have to help them, which, you know, some of it is standard interviewing skills, like mm-hmm. any 
if you do a podcast, you interview people. If you do journalism, you interview people. I think the difference goes for you also you also have to tread the line between being like, what do you want to say? You're the boss. You tell me what's right or wrong in some ways, mm-hmm. versus like, actually, that's not a good argument. Mm-hmm. You know, like even though I'm not the expert in the thing you want to write about, but I can at least say that doesn't make that much sense. Blah blah. So you have to kind of tread the line between in some ways being consultant and being yeah. like a uh, service, just say. Um, assistant right so interesting there i feel like i'm starting to see so many parallels with like user experience design yeah like like i don't know everything about e-commerce but i i feel like i've gotten to the point where i can have like a a formed opinion on whether a person will find like some sort of feature on etsy like Mm. compelling or not compelling or like i have a sense of how they will behave in that experience or something like that. yeah yeah you are the connection between that person and their audience oh my yeah. god that's so cool <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> what what percentage of the things that we are reading are written by those writers would you say <laughs> much higher than you anticipate that's like what, what i'm like as you were talking i was like how many people's thoughts have i read that have been written by somebody else yeah or like perhaps not like a hundred percent written but at least massaged by somebody else and it makes sense like people work with editors but now i'm just like coming to question everything i know it's like illuminati or something (laughs) yeah i mean i would say i try to limit my role to just refining expanding and clarifying what they want to say so i never really just tell them like i once had a client I was like so what should i write about i was like that's not my job like right. i'm ex- i play an executionary role mm. um so i don't know i feel like yes i think it's much more, anyone with money basically whether mm-hmm. it's your company funding it or you individual funding it, sometimes they will give credit like 10 france his memoir he'll give credit to his ghostwriter mm. maybe they wouldn't use the word ghostwriter because it has like triggers for people yeah yeah but they'll be like thanks so much for the writing help you know <laughs> so that's how you know what sort of writing or like publication channels tend to have ghostwriters if i like read a like an article in the newspaper Mm. like that probably doesn't have ghostwriters if it's reporting it's reporting yeah yeah if it's like an opinion article that may be yeah especially if it's someone if you feel like that person has an agenda to ultimately sell something Mm. if that makes sense like you're reading best practices in ux design by in this fast company or something yeah, like that. and right. the author of it happens to run a ux design consultancy i see um you know maybe they did write it but most likely they have a marketing team and someone wrote it or uh, i think if you just think of presidential speeches presidential yeah. things like that we call them speech writers but they also do other things other than speeches right yeah mind blown like <laughs> so, cool. so blown <laughs> oh my god <laughs> wow do you have any like take weird cool takeaways weird, be cool weird takeaways. or cool i don't know why i said those words <laughs> mm, yeah i mean i think i mean the coolest thing or weirdest thing whenever you see like an article that's kind of like like weak like it's like the usual quality i think so many times and but the author is maybe semi-famous as well connected uh, what the publications editors are looking for is just to get that person's name attached to the publication mm-hmm. So you're sometimes like, how does this stuff get published? And it's not so good. I remember I worked for, when I worked for the CEO, you know, there were people like, please write a column for us. And you could just like publish anything almost and they'll take it. Wow. Um, <laughs> it's just like really low quality. So it's kind of like, wow, it's so easy. But I was just like, you know, it's like, it, so one is you have to work so hard to be a writer, but once you're like famous, like the world's just open up. Open you could up. just like coast. You could just be your worst self and it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> just mail it in the rest of your life. Oh my wow. God. Incredible. That's, that is my takeaway. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, probably people, you might, your career might plateau, but you'll still be like famous. So how do you feel um, writing about your own personal experiences or like, I think you mentioned before, like, if not me, then who could tell this story? And mm. I'm curious if you could talk more about those, those pieces. So when I do like the, if not me, the who I'm usually thinking about telling a story that exists that's not me, but oh. I have particular oh. access to it. Got it. And oh, I was like, I I'll be Googling. Has anyone reported on this yet? Oh, shit. I think I have to do it. You know, so mm. it's more it's more like that. Um, and I would say that if not me, but who does come with a certain kind of ego in terms of being like, I must rise to the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> As a lot the- of people don't, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's true. I don't know. Um, when it comes to writing personal stuff, I think that's kind of why I save a lot of it more for sermons because they're not written down. Uh-huh. <laughs> um but I get nervous about sharing personal stuff. Um, I'm, I'm trying to force myself to like get better at doing it. Did you have any further questions, Yoko? Oh my gosh, I don't know. I'm just still processing everything. It's oh <laughs> so cool. So we have a few um, segments on this podcast. Yes. We've got a standard <laughs> question that you must now answer. Yep. It's is, so where are you from? And then it's this question. <laughs> and it's fuck, Mary, kill, rice, noodles, or bread. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> my I remember when we discussed this in Whole Foods after church. Yes. <laughs> I think my st- answer is the same answer like most Asian people give. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, what like, is it? Well, I think more, particularly in my family's like from southern China. So I think if you're northern, you probably answer like noodles might be your number one. Uh, Mary Rice, I would, um, yeah, I guess fuck noodles mm-hmm. and kill bread. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, okay. So the follow-up question that I now have, I don't oh. think we've asked anybody this one, is beef, pork, or chicken? I think you did ask I did. I asked you, I but I don't think we've asked We're anyone on this. Um, yeah, I always feel... I'm trying to cut down the, the beef mm-hmm. intake. Um, so I guess I would marry chicken. I guess. Now, I mean, marriage is like a, a chore, so <laughs> sometimes, so I guess it makes sense. And I guess, you know, I can give up. Pork is just so good sometimes. Right? It, it makes sense to fuck pork. Um, <laughs> and I guess kill, kill, kill the beef. I don't eat a lot of meat that much anymore, but if I had to eat a meat every day, like, I don't think I could do beef or pork. Mm. You know? Yeah. yeah. I could eat chicken every day. Yeah. Beef or pork, I don't know. And then as for what I would fuck or kill i think it would be i think i might kill pork wait i don't know i don't know bacon well, yeah i don't know it's i think i prefer gyoza you can put other stuff in gyoza yeah that's true <laughs> um pork belly pork belly is i i'm thinking of like a burger ah uh, you so, so, you know, so much part. of chinese food is pork based i realize oh really if you think about other things you mentioned mm-hmm. it, well gyoza is could be go either but way you but like shumai yeah, we, we're yeah. not big. I mean, also, whenever I travel in Southeast Asia, I never order the beef. There isn't a lot of, like, beef stuff happening. Stuff stuff happening. It's mm. mostly pork and chicken. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I think I might say goodbye to pork, which is kind of weird. I didn't yeah. expect that out of myself. If I really had to think about it. No, what about I, you, Kate? I give Sarah's answer, man. <laughs> Marrying the chicken, you know, putting in the long yeah, work, commitment. commitment. Um, you know, not every climate day change. Exactly. <laughs> not every day is exciting, but it is important. <laughs> Basically. Exactly. Although once in a while good chicken soup to help you in your sick days. Exactly. So Who's true. come through? Be there when you're sick. Yeah. <laughs> that chicken. That chicken. 
like that pork is not gonna help you when you're like in bed like oh i'm so weak no but pork's gonna leave this you. chicken include duck yes oh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna fold in like fowl poultry. Yeah. yeah poultry mm-hmm. hmm. okay so you've now killed beef what about fish so now your choices are oh, chicken dang. pork or fish oh my god oh wow <laughs> Uh, and you've now killed pork, so your choices are now chicken, beef, or fish. Dang. Yeah, that's a hot take. Well, I, I know I think I would marry fish. I would marry fish, too. Yeah, yeah. but mm-hmm. I don't know where that leaves me with the rest. That's a harder question. Is it? Is I wonder if chicken is like a, a marry or kill sort of situation. <laughs> yeah, you just yeah, yeah I think chicken. so. Yeah, that's like, it's just kind of bland enough. Yeah, yeah like, <laughs> why would you fuck with it? Yeah. Right. Yeah, because if you're fucking it, then it's like kind of like, oh, that's kind of bad. But it's yeah. not. It's like, it's, it's like, really it's not. Chicken. <laughs> it's not bad. It's just chicken. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I guess I would fuck pork then, and then yeah. kill everyone else. Mm. No, I won't. If I could only, it would only be beef and fish for the rest of my life. Uh, that's probably okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not happy about those. This. Are like two very extreme ends of the meat spectrum. I know. <laughs> I know. It's like if I get used to eating fish every day, and then like once a month I eat, eat like a hamburger, I'm just gonna have to like take the next day off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely yeah. hear that. So you would also just like say goodbye to chicken? Yeah, I would fuck the pork. I love pork. Okay. Oh my god, it's so savory and fatty and delicious. So like, bad. Yeah, so bad though. <laughs> yeah, I eat I eat way more fish now than I used to. Like I've I used to be like a hardcore like what chicken fish, thigh. What fish do you eat? Salmon. I eat a lot of salmon. I still have very low confidence when it comes to cooking fish. Like really. Yeah, Kevin, my fiance, does all of the fish cooking. Like, I, I don't know. I'm always scared of it because fish, I feel like you can overcook it and it becomes really like the appeal of it is gone. I also don't love fish that mm. much, which is weird why I decided to marry <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so I just, I don't have a lot of experience cooking it. So my confidence level is like super low. Got it. How do you cook your salmon? Uh, I've tried a bunch of different recipes. I do like miso glazed salmon. Mm. I do like Dijon mustard and honey glazed salmon. But usually like on a pan or in the oven? Uh, Both. So like if I do like pan, it's usually some kind of like oil and stuff on top. Um, Mm. Yeah. I try not to use like anything super fragrant, like coconut oil or sesame oil with the salmon. Oh yeah, definitely. That makes sense. Yeah to not distract from the flavor but like salmon it's always like you can't go wrong with like salt pepper a little bit of lemon and then some kind of herb right exactly Mm -hmm. and then maybe a little bit of butter if you're feeling bad wow Mm -hmm. yeah some say anything about butter Mm -hmm. you put butter in everything butter (laughs) we have to come up with a fuck mary kill that involves butter maybe it can be dairy based then yeah Um, a dairy based fuck mary kill are you lactose intolerant i'm not actually I, i mean I do. I can't take too heavily creamy stuff, but mm-hmm. I think that's probably normal. It's like kinda... most humans. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'm not lactose intolerant. But yeah. yeah. I don't know. I really. I make dairy. my own soy milk. I guess would soy milk be a dairy? It is a milk substitute, but uh, it is not. I don't know if dairy. I would call it a dairy. Wait, how do you make your soy milk? Can you tell us? A soy milk machine. There's a soy what? milk machine? <laughs> like a it. rice cooker, but for soy milk? Yeah, I bought it online. It's great. <gasps> oh, my God. So you kind of, if you have an Instant Pot, you can kind of, like, modify it. Oh, so it kind of does pot. that. And if it was Instant Pot and a blender, you can c- combine it to create soy milk functioning. But I just have one dedicated just to soy milk. 
um, it's pretty simple. You just like soak the beans, throw in some water, and it grinds it and brings the temperature of the water up to a very, very hot level. So it kind of makes milk. And then the hard part is really just um, putting it through a cheesecloth uh, or nut yeah, cloth so that the pulp, and the pulp is like boiling hot. So that I was like kind of semi burn myself during that process. <laughs> oh, gosh. That's dedication. Whoa. But it's good. I mean, you can control how sweet you want it. You know, you have it fresh because I don't really, I don't really buy grocery store soy milk for this reason. Yeah. I mean, why would you if you can make it yourself? Yeah. That sounds like it would be so good. I can wow. make it for you next time. Yeah. I can come to church. I'll just bring a tub. Oh my just text God. me and oh I'll make God. it. I just have to do it the night before to soak the beans. Oh my God. Wow. I am definitely going to hit you up from some soy milk. I love soy milk. Okay, good. Do you like, how sweet do you like yours? Uh, like medium sweet, like okay. 30% sweet. Like if we're talking like boba terms, like <laughs> I was going to ask. <laughs> okay. That sounds about right for okay. me too. Sweet. What's your boba sweetness? Uh, yeah, I usually go to 30%. Sometimes I sometimes do 0% if it's going to be like passion fruit, mm. kind of oh, where the fruit or else is sweet. I once ordered a bitter melon tea. Whoa. They had it in this place called some... Wait, bitter melon? Yeah. Not like when, bitter melon. Bitter melon. Mm-hmm. Like straight up bitter melon um, tea. It was in like some place in Flushing mm-hmm. off like Main Street. It was really good. But I was like, maybe I need to increase the sugar level. Oh, like, yeah. That that was like... <laughs> I was like, bitter melon tea with 0% sweet? That is torture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I did 30%. But even 30% was like, whoa. The aftertaste is very strong. Yes, yes. But it was great. I highly recommend if you have a fatty, oily meal to drink that tea. Wow. Well, Sarah, cool. thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having so me. Cool. You thank are you. incredible. Where can people find your work on the internet? Sure. I guess I did create a website for myself. Yeah. <laughs> Just to kind of have more, all my writing in one place. Because I do write about kind of random, disparate things like queer so stuff or class stuff. SarahNew.com. And the other thing that's probably helpful to plug is I co-founder of an organization called churchclarity.com mm-hmm. oh yeah that um scores church websites for how clearly they communicate their lgbtq policies and women leadership policies Amazing. so I imagine we have a number of methodist churches and potentially even japanese methodist churches so we one of your old churches on the website oh Can- I don't know I, I'll, I'll have to check oh my god <laughs> yeah, anyone can submit or anyone can volunteer what have you so yeah Check it out. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. This is so cool. This This podcast podcast was brought to you by Gary Chow. The God. The God. Thanks, Gary, for lending us your equipment, your space, and for teaching us how to use this equipment and just generally being our number one sponsor and pod dad everything he does is so considerate like he started storing like all the podcast materials in like a certain way and yeah and then he like wrote a medium post about <laughs> it that is like unlisted so it's only shared to the people that he like lets use his equipment and i'm like gary that's so thanks. sweet <laughs> so sweet thank you gary thanks gary you're the best yoko yeah where can people find you on the internet you can find me on twitter and instagram at p-s-y-o-k-o Kate, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at C-M-Y-K-A-Y-T-O-E at C-M-Y-K-T-O. Mostly on Instagram. Um, Yeah, if you want to follow the podcast, we're at S-W-A-Y-F podcast on Twitter and Instagram. Our website is swavepodcast.com and our email is swavepodcast at gmail.com. Oh, yeah. 
And also, shout out to my mom for writing us an email with a model minority suggestion. Andrew T. From Yo, Is This Racist? I believe he has been a model minority in one of our earlier episodes yeah, before. Yeah, I think so. But that is a fantastic podcast. He now has a new co-host, which has added like a, a nice element yeah. to that show. A good dynamic. I yeah, think. exactly. Every Everybody needs a good co-host. Right, Yoko? Yeah, Kate. Yeah. Anyways, we love you all. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.